Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. This episode, I would ordinarily be talking to my guest from pre season Formula One testing or an early race somewhere, but this year he's decided, given that there is a massive 23 events on the calendar, to cut back a little. So he's at home in the UK. And I'm chatting to him from my place on the complete opposite side of the earth, effectively. Will Buxton has been immersed in F1 since high school, writing about it, learning from some of the most respected journos who he kind of pestered to get some experience. That enthusiasm helped open doors and later on he would venture into commentating and broadcasting, not just on F1, but IndyCar and more. Will has been at the forefront of the sport's new digital era, too, on all sorts of platforms. Many of you will know him from post-race panel shows on Twitter, all kinds of content for motorsport.com, and, of course, the Netflix Drive to Survive series. There are two trophies, two championships at stake, one for the individual drivers and one for the teams. And with both within reach, everyone's pushing themselves to the absolute limit. Over the four seasons so far, he's become their main storyteller, decoding aspects of the sport for new followers. And there is a lot of new fans, thanks to the incredible success of this series. It's helped to unmask the stars of the paddock and give the world a little more access to a game that for so long has had this almost impenetrable veneer the closer you got to it. We'll talk about Drive to Survive in more detail and what it takes to bring this doco series together. It is quite an undertaking. We also cover a couple of yarns contained in his book on greatest defeats and the learnings that some legendary drivers took from those moments and more. This pod and a couple of others we have in our library are all part of a special drop to celebrate the return of the Australian Grand Prix. So make sure you check that out when you get a moment. We begin this ep with a lasting impression, literally, that motorsport had on Will Buxton from an early age. The first time I experienced motor racing actually physically affected me. I still have a scar on my shin uh, from the Prescott Hill Climb when I was, I think, four years old. Um, And my my dad took me to the Prescott Hill Climb. Um, And... Being a little kid and not really watching where I was going, I tripped over one of those huge metal tent pegs. You know, the ones with like the bird edges where it's been slammed into the ground about a hundred times and the metal's all kind of sharp and, and curled over the top. And I tripped over it and gashed my, my, my shin. And I still have a scar on my skin from it. So I can say that, that my first ever memory of motorsports is, is forever etched into me. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> um, and I just, I, I, you know how it is, mate. You just, you fall in love with the with the sound and the, the color and the speed and the smell um, and, and the, the, the sort of the terrifying nature of it, certainly as a kid, just, just how kind of scary it was um, and how impressive 
these these people who were driving these cars, you know, up a hill as fast as they could in in you know whatever they brought were, and I I just sort of fell in love with it there. And you know, my dad wasn't a massive racing fan, but we li- lived near the Prescott Hill Climb, so uh, we went to that and then started watching Formula One on TV, and we both kind of got into it together. And it was very much a, a ritual, you know. My mum would cook lunch on a on a Sunday, traditional British Sunday roast lunch. We'd eat. And then we'd sit down in front of the TV and hear Murray Walker and, and, and watch Formula One. So that would have been about 1985. My earliest memories of, of watching Formula One were, you know, probably around 88, 89. So it's Senna, Prost, you know, that, just that, that incredible era of the sport. And that's, that's what's got me hooked. This is amazing. Senna goes off at the first corner. But what has happened to Prost? He has gone off too. So you're an early 80s child, right? So is there one car maybe in that late 80s period there that you're referring to that you really have a, um, a special or, or fond memory of? Maybe it's one of the McLarens that, that Senna raced at the time perhaps. Um, yeah, from a, from a, from a race, racing perspective, it would be those late 1980s McLarens, you know, in the red and white Marlboro livery and just something about it with that yellow helmet, you know, flashing under the trees at Monza or Hockenheim or something like that. You know, even now looking back on them and watching, watching footage, it was just the way they, you know, they bounced around and they were so nimble and light and, and, and the sparks kicking out the back and, you know, they looked and sounded terrifying. And there was this person in the middle of it who was just an absolute hero to me. Um, yeah, it was, was, was an incredible era and just a, just a great time to fall in love with the sport, you know. Definitely. You've blended a lot of things in your life and career together in some respects. I want to turn a little, uh, a little bit left here in the conversation, and that is your love of music. And it pops oh, up cool, regularly okay. in, 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 your, in your social media and, and things like that. And there are people, um, you know, in the current era, in the Formula One paddock. I mean, Dan is a massive, uh, Daniel Ricciardo is a massive lover of, of music. I mean, Lewis Hamilton's often talked about um, yep. that as well. Is that something you get to talk to people in the, in the paddock about, that shared love? I wish it was, you know, and I wish we could spend more time talking about the things that people actually like rather than just mm. talking about what compound tyre is <laughs> is more suitable to this track this weekend. Um, yeah, it's, it's, actually, it's funny because when you interview someone like Lewis, he gets so sick and tired of talking about racing and, you know, fuel levels and setups and, and tyres that if you do go down a different path and talk to him about something else. You actually get really good answers out of him and something that he's kind of engaged in and, and feels passionately about. Um, but it's very difficult because on our, on our media days, you know, you have two questions, maybe three questions yep. in, a, in a media pen environment. And, you know, doing the job that I do for Formula One right now, I've got to get the kind of the information that is going to go out on the F1 website or it's going to go to the news feeds. So it's going to go out to, to the channels that maybe don't have the rights to show Formula One and are just going to show these quotes on their, on their, on their news roundups. So I've got to kind of get more newsy type stuff. But I wish, I wish there was more time to talk about it because I love trying to draw out what these guys are about and what they love and try to make them a bit more real and a bit more human to folks mm. at home. And, you know, those things, their, their interests. Like, yeah, dude, I wish we had more time to talk about that. Um, from, from your side, mate, is it, is it singing and do you play an instrument? Yes. Okay, so my, my musical background is, is really crazy. I, it's um, a choir, wasn't it? Were you, were you, yeah, were you I, was, I was a chorister um, yeah. at Worcester, Worcester Cathedral um, for, 
I want to say about five years. Mm-hmm. And we toured the world and we recorded albums. I'm actually, believe it or not, a uh, number one uh, selling recording artist, uh, officially. <laughs> uh, our, our, our Christmas album was in the classical charts at number one. Uh, Fantastic. Like, I've had a Christmas number one. <laughs> how mad is, how awesome. mad is that? It's, it's ridiculous. But it's cool, right? Because I'm like, I'm 10 years old, okay? And I'm a chorister. And... Um, you get you got paid if you if you did recordings so you'd get paid like 60 quid each to do to do a recording session so i i remember being like 10 years old 11 years old and saying to my dad you know all this money that i'd sort of accumulated doing these these recordings which you'd put into account i was like dad there's this new thing out and it's called a game boy and i'd really like to to go and buy it with with some (laughs) of the the money that and so he he did and he let me take the money out and i went and bought myself so my first game boy i bought with my own money that i'd that i'd made you know recording these albums it was it was it was a really cool time but that you know, I've always been quite musical. I've always loved music. I come from a very musical family. Certainly on my on my mum's side, she's incredibly musical. Um, and I, you know, I sang. I played the piano. I played the trumpet, the French horn, and um, I was classically trained. But then my love of of you know sort of popular music really sort of stemmed from that and i guess sort of sitting in the car and my dad playing me the beatles literally every day as a kid so my earliest memories are sitting in the car with my dad listening cool. to the beatles and and um and loving it through that and i i i i stopped learning piano age 12 but i've played consistently since and when i hit 17 i bought bought a guitar taught myself to play guitar and i just find a lot of peace and relaxation comes from just sitting down, picking up a guitar, playing, um, and or sitting at the piano and playing the piano, and just I, I, I find it super, super relaxing. And it's lovely now because my daughter's at an age, you know, she's going to be twelve uh, this week, and she's at that age, you know, that I was when I was getting into music, and she's getting into music now. And you know, and the other day she says, you know, Alexa, play. Nirvana and so I'm sitting there singing along to the songs and she's like oh dad how do you know Nirvana and I'm like I'm sorry how do you know Nirvana um, but it's but it's great because you know like at, at, when I was her age I was listening to the Beatles and the Stones and James Brown and stuff from 30 years before where you know where, where, where I was and she's listening to stuff from 30 years before where we are now and I love it and that's opening up her ears and her enjoyment of what is current as well and and influencing everything that she kind of listens to so it's all cyclical and it's just it's great man it's, it's beautiful that's terrific she's got that broad appreciation i think that's excellent did, did it sort of i mean that leads me i guess to the fact that your early work in formula one was around sort of magazines and writing how did the the opportunity to you know to do that come about were you pestering someone at a magazine how did <laughs> how did you get the break how did that happen so uh, I was 13 when, when Senna was killed and that week my dad bought me my first copy of Autosport and Motoring News so I was reading guys like Nigel Roebuck and David Tremaine and um, you know their words kind of spoke to me as a 13 year old kid whose, whose mates didn't necessarily really understand why I was so upset about, about Senna being killed and I immediately knew from the age of 13 that's what I want to do I want to I write, I want to be David Tremaine you know um, and I went to the Autosport show uh, in Birmingham 
in the UK, which is sort of a big trade show and lots of racing teams from around the world sort of use it to launch their cars or... Which um, you've just you know. hosted recently, which is amazing when you think about where life has come for you, you know? Dude, so. don't, don't. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, yeah, and, and there was a, um, a tiny little stand at the, at the, at the uh, Autosports International Show that uh, was for a new magazine, the official magazine of Formula One, which is F1 magazine. Um, there's, there, there used to be two. There used to be F1 Racing and F1 Magazine. Mm-hmm. And sat on this very small stand, literally at the back of the hall, was a guy I thought I recognised, and it was David Tremaine. And I went up to him and I said, hi, David, you know, my name's Will. Um, I've always wanted to be a Formula One journalist. I don't know if, if there's anything I need to do or, you know, any advice you could give me. And he gave me his card and he wrote his, his personal home phone number on the back and his email address. And he just said, send me a thousand words on anything you want on Monday. So I went home and I sat there and I typed away and I typed this article and I, and I sent it to him and he, and he replied and he just said, yeah, you know, look, it's a little rough, but there's, there's something there. Let's keep in touch. Um, and we did. And I went through university and I decided to write my dissertation. I studied politics and I decided to write my, my thesis on the politics of Formula One. And David helped me with that and put me in touch with Joe Saywood. And Joe said, you know, David says you want to write. Why don't you send me an article a month and I'll, I'll put it on my website. So I started writing for Grand Prix.com while I was at university. And then Fantastic. I left uni and, and DT said, hey, why don't you come and do two weeks work experience with us? Help us put together our news review of the year for the Formula One annual. So I said, okay, cool, you know, came in, I worked for two weeks, like, you know, just so, so hard, worked really, really hard trying to impress the guys. And at the end of the second week, I took a pillow and a sleeping bag into the office. And, <laughs> and, uh, and DT said, what's that for? And I said, well, I'm not leaving. And he said, don't worry, we weren't gonna ask you to. And took me <laughs> on and, and uh, that's where it all started, mate, 20 years ago. out and away we go. Will, feel free to tell the Netflix guys they can use that. So some writing and, and, uh, and magazine work to begin with. What about the foray into some form of broadcasting? How did that opportunity come about and what was the very first sort of time you gravitated to picking up a microphone? Mate, it was all a mistake. You know, um, they always say television is where journalism goes to die. Uh, but, <laughs> um, uh, so I worked for Formula One magazine until um, the plug was pulled from it. And I, I freelanced for a year. And at the end of that year, I was offered the job to go and be press officer at, at GP2, which was just starting at that time, now known obviously as Formula Two. Um, so I did that for three years and I loved it. And then I came back to, to writing in uh, 2008. Eight, um, and at the end of that year, GP2 Asia was supporting at the Chinese Grand Prix, and they suddenly realised they didn't have a commentator for the World Feed, and they were scrambling around. Oh, who can we get? And Tony Dodgins, who's a, a, a brilliant journalist, was doing some some spotting work for for F1 officially, and said, "Well, why don't you why don't you guys give Will a call? You know, he used to be the press officer for the series." He never shuts up. Like maybe he'd be all right with a microphone in his hand. So they gave me a call. I went down. I did the practice session, not going out live. Just I've just you know commentated over the top or just talked over the top of it. And they were like, "That's great. You're, we're we're going to bring you in for commentary." So I did commentary. I did the races by myself, standalone comms for first ever comms, and, um, and yeah, and then um, 
yeah, they said, well, we'd like you to come back and do the full main GP2 season for 2009. And that's where it started. Just just a complete chance event. Um, and I did the 2009 season doing commentary on GP2. And at the end of that year, I got a call from Speed Channel in the States. And they said, you may not know this, but we've been getting your world feed commentary. We've been putting our own commentary over it. Um, but in, in the production room, we, we listen to you as you're commentating and we love it. And it's really fresh and it's really fun. And Peter Windsor, who was their pit lane reporter in Formula One, was going off to set up the USF1 team. And they said, we need a new pit lane reporter. Yep. Do you want to be our pit lane reporter? And I, I jumped at it, mate. And that was, God, uh, 12 years ago. So uh, it all, you know, it's, the, it's you know what it's like, mate, in, in this sport. It's the crazy thing where, you know, if you're around and, and, and you keep pushing and, and you keep showing your kind of enthusiasm and your will to work, sometimes these little these little things come that, that allow you to, to, to move on to the next mm. stage. And I was really lucky that happened for me. And, and I've made 12 years now broadcasting. I still pinch myself over it because growing up and listening to Murray Walker, broadcasting was something I never dreamed of doing because that's what Murray did. Um, and there never seemed like there would ever be an opportunity for, you know, for a little English kid to do that. So I'm, I'm incredibly incredibly thankful that I, I ever got the opportunity to, to pick up a microphone and talk about about this thing I love. The conversation so far, mate, we have largely framed around Formula One with a, a little bit of um, talk of early hill climb experiences and so on. But the love of IndyCar oh, yeah. um, sort of creeps in here with, um, I mean, you got to work with our mutual and very good buddy, Lee Diffie, who's in my podcast library here, and I've known him forever. But you got to go and play in that space too. And you, you know, you, you have a proper love of Formula One, I know, but you thoroughly enjoy that IndyCar experience and still do, mate, don't you? Oh, dude, I just love racing, you know, like all of us. I, like, I just love racing. Um, but IndyCar has a very, very special place in my heart. It's just such a, a vibrant championship. Um, you know, the fact you can go into any weekend and any one of like 15 to 20 drivers has got a shot at winning the race. It's, and it's the main event, you know, and such a phenomenally skilled group of drivers, great tracks, you know, the differentiation between road courses, street courses, ovals, it's brilliant. It's, it's genuinely brilliant. I think it's some of the, the most exciting racing in the world. Um, criminally underwatched, criminally underappreciated, uh, but just phenomenal. And if you're ever lucky enough to go to a race, be it, in the media, you know, as, as we are, or as a fan, you get the same access. You know, you, you, you can just walk up to a driver and just be like, hey, how's it going? Um, and they'll stop and they'll talk. And it's just, dude, it's mega. Like, it's, it's so fun and open yeah. and, and accommodating. And it's, it's wonderful. It's, I, I can't say enough about how much I love IndyCar. Now, there is on the CV a little bit of race oh, driving. mate. I want you to tell me a bit. Uh, come on, come on. Tell us about this, how it came about. You did a few races too, didn't you? Tell us more. I can't say I raced, right? I can say I... <laughs> yes, Participated, I, like I me. I shared a racing track with some racing drivers. Um, yeah, I mean, look, you know what they say, those who can do and those who can't talk about it. Uh, so I'm very firmly in the second exactly. grouping. But um, it feels like forever ago now, and it is nearly 10 years ago, Um 2014, Ferrari uh, invited me out to the US to take part in a, uh, a junior championship that they were running called the Florida Winter Series, which was using the Tatus F4 car. 
and it was for young young kids just coming straight out of karts to get a first taste of, of racing and there was a a pretty decent lineup of drivers uh ed jones who went to race in indycar tatiana calderon uh who we know very well uh who's now in, in indycar this year yep. um kids like Raffaele Marcello and Antonio Fuoco who were part of the, the Ferrari junior program at the time um, and a couple of, of kids who went on to be all right uh, actually um, Nicholas Latifi Lance Stroll uh, and, Good company. Uh, and, and a certain young well a certain young man by the by the name of Max Verstappen uh, so cool. it was it was crazy man you know it was, it was crazy and uh, and I loved it I loved being able to see these kids you know literally raw straight out of go-karts stepping into single seaters for the first time watching how they raced watching how they how they learned how they adapted you know at my first session i was like 18 seconds off the pace um and then by the end of the weekend i was running i think my fastest lap was like two seconds off verstappen which i'll take you know i'll take and i will i will yeah. forever okay. have on forex.com which is like the industry website of of ev- every every <laughs> result in history ever it will be forever written on there that i finished ahead of nicholas latifi in a race so i'm 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 all right with that you know but i can't say i raced you know um i think nicholas had a had a, had a wing problem or something and ended up ended up behind me but i held him off i held him off for two laps uh so that was good uh, but yeah you know what man just we talk about it so much, but just to be in the car and to gain, I'd always understood the, the theory of slipstream. I'd always understood the theory of, you know, dirty air or picking up, you know, rubbish all over your tires or, you know, whatever. Um, and I got to experience all of that. And I got, I got a real firsthand appreciation of, of what it felt like. So to be able to talk about it and, and not just know the theory, not just know you know why it happens but to know what that feels like was was you know to know what a flat spot feels like and and how how violent the shaking is in the car once you flat spotted a tire it was it was absolutely huge and i'll be i'll always be unbelievably thankful to to ferrari for giving me that opportunity massive mate massive so at some point here um liberty media becomes involved in in formula one things change in the american broadcasting Landscape and and unfortunately your your time and connection with those networks comes to an end. But but a new opportunity emerges on the digital yeah. side of the business, and it you know on paper uh, will it was perfectly timed because they have believed in this space, they have invested in this space. Um, you know they wanted to give it a youthful feel, a different feel, and and you were very much at the forefront of that, weren't you? Yeah, and you know, this was Formula Formula One was really behind the, the curve on it, and I think it's because Formula One was actually really ahead of the curve in the digital space. Um, they had a digital television network years and years and years before uh, before it was the thing to do, but it was so early that it was a mass it made a, a huge loss. So Bernie pulled the plug on its, you know, digital TV and all of that. And it was, you know, they had, a, you know, essentially a, um, an over the top television offering a decade before it was it was the, the profitable or, or fashionable thing to do. So he was always then, I think, very careful of or protective of not moving into something which he saw might be a fad. 
as it turned out, social media really mm -hmm. wasn't a fad and was to be the future. Um, and, you know, digital programming was to be the future. But Formula One had, had invested nothing in it. And it was one of the first things that Liberty Media did was, and I think they realized that, you know, with the move towards so many countries having their Formula One coverage behind a paywall, if they were going to increase eyeballs and increase the uh, sort of fan space of the sport, they needed to create almost a free-to-air TV through the digital domain. And that's everything that we've done over the last five years is creating that free-to-air through YouTube, through Twitter, through Instagram, through, you know, all of those outlets and creating content which hopefully would be good enough to go on any network anywhere in the world to engage, excite and bring people in and teach mm. them and tell them the stories, not just about what's, what, about what's going on now, but about the history to give it context. Mm. So mm. yeah, it's been, it's been a real thrill to be a part of that, to be kind of at the heart of that and, uh, and to tell the stories. We want to get to Drive to Survive because there's lots of interest from a from a listener point of view, obviously. Yeah, of course. Can we dabble, Will, um, briefly in, in a great writing experience for you, which um, listeners of the podcast can still buy at places like Amazon, for example, and that is My Greatest Defeat, stories of hardship and hope from motor racing's finest heroes. Don't I mean, there's there's a a lot of them in there, and some fantastic backstories which I which I um, which I love the notion of. Two, maybe give us two that that perhaps stood out for you. I mean, I mean, Nicky Lauder opened up about the the tragedy involving the airline, for example. He's now very sadly left us. Um, there's others in there as well, even beyond the Formula One sphere. I mean, you you there's Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson and and all sorts, mate, isn't there? Yeah, so. I wanted to write a book that wasn't a traditional motor racing book that wasn't really about racing, but was about personal experience and personal difficulties that drivers had been through, how they'd got through them and what it had taught them, whether, you know, their racing experience had allowed them to get through that or, you know, whatever, mostly just to show that racing drivers under the helmet and under the overalls are just, just people like us. And to then hopefully allow us, if we're in a space where we're struggling or, or finding life quite hard, that we could look at our heroes and realize that they'd experienced those difficulties too. Um, and that it's very normal and it's okay to talk about it. And I was, really humbled with how open a lot of the drivers were, the stories that they told um, and the lessons that they really sort of provided for, for all of us that we can take into our lives. Uh, Nikki, as you said, was amazing talking about the, the plane crash. Um, one of his, one of his planes went down when he ran louder air and he made it his mission to not just prove that it wasn't the fault of his pilots, but to figure out what had gone wrong, why it had gone wrong and ensure that it could never happen again because Boeing were adamant that there was nothing wrong with their plane, but Nikki had been to the crash site and had seen on one of the engines that the reverse thruster was engaged. And they just passed it off as, oh, well, you know, things happen in crashes and so you don't read too much into it. And Nikki was just like, no, that's not right. And it turned out an, an O-ring had, had failed and allowed the reverse thruster to come on at, I think like 30, 35,000 feet. So essentially it put it into a, a, an unsavable Ooh. spin because one engine's pushing forwards, the other one's pushing back and it just, whoop, just, just back. pushed into a spin. Um, and there's a great story that he, that, that he told in there about, you know, he had tried this in the simulator over and over again himself to pull it out and he had never been able to do it and none of his pilots could. And he was just like, right, this is, this is crazy. So he went to the board of Boeing and said, 
this is what's happened and you need to accept and admit culpability and you need to make a change to the design of these planes, they wouldn't accept it. So he said, okay, no problem. I've got one of the planes on the runway right now. We'll go up. All of us, right now, come on, let's go. We'll go up. We'll, do, we'll, we'll, we'll kick that reverse thruster in on one side and not on the other. And if we all come down safely, fine. You know, we'll accept that it's, it's on us, but we won't. And obviously nobody got on the plane and within a week, I think, Boeing had accepted that they needed to do an investigation, then admitted fault, made a change. And now every aeroplane in the world has this safety feature on it, which means that can never happen again. So that was pretty good. But I mean, um, I think the story that really spoke to me the most was talking to Jeff Gordon and talking to him about Mm -hmm. his life uh, outside of racing um, relationships. uh, uh, He had a failed marriage, how that had affected him. and his family and, and his friends and, and really coming through that. Um, and it, it ended up, Jeff and I were kind of finishing each other's converse, sort of sentences. Um, and, and we really, wow. we really kind of in, engaged with one another because we, we both experienced something quite similar. And uh, yeah, it was, that was amazing. And Jeff, and it got, it got really emotional. And at the end, we were both kind of on the edge of, of being quite emotional and he was just like well I know why I'm emotional why are you so emotional I was just like dude like because I've, I've, I've been there man I've been there so it was mm. yeah that, that it was really amazing really really amazing and I was very very grateful that that they that they opened up I, I was really hoping to write a, a second volume of it at, at some point um, and there were so many drivers that I wanted to talk to uh, one of whom was Vic Elford who we've just very recently lost and so you know I really want to try and tell these stories and talk to these guys before uh, you know certainly some of the some, some of the ones who are, are getting on a bit before you know be- before I lose the opportunity to That's the end of part one of my podcast with F1 broadcaster and journalist Will Buxton. Don't forget, this is part of a special release of episodes to coincide with the return of the Australian Grand Prix, and they are in the library right now. I hope you enjoy them. If you're keen for more on Will, part two is all parked and ready for you to fire up. From Drive to Survive, the runaway success story doco series on Formula One, how he came to be a part of it, and some behind-the-scenes observations on what it takes to bring each season on Netflix together. Plus, some thoughts on the season ahead and his impressions of Oscar Piastri, an Aussie waiting in the wings who is seriously talented. This is a kid who's Lewis Hamilton good, you know, Charles Leclerc good. He's, he's, no, but he is, you know, you look at Mm. what he's done. What he's achieved so far. Yeah, and Mm. how he's achieved it year on year, just in, championship, pow, step up, championship, pow, step up, championship. You know, there aren't many drivers that can do that. Listener.